Julian Strother dropped 40 points against the Pilots on Saturday, where it ranks among all-time Gonzaga regular season performances, and how long until we see 40 by a Zag again. You are Locked On Zags, your daily podcast on the Gonzaga Bulldogs. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What is going on, y'all? Welcome to the Locked On Zags podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I am your host and longtime Gonzaga podcaster, Andy Patton, here to give you daily reports through another season of Gonzaga Hoops. Today's episode of Locked On Zags is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the qualified candidates that you want to talk to faster. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash college. That's linkedin.com slash college to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. All right, happy Monday. It is Mailbag Monday. We are happy as the Zags secured themselves a very fun victory on Saturday over the Portland Pilots. Uh, once again, the Zags haven't been making any of their road trips particularly easy, although they led more or less from wire to wire in this one against the uh, Pilots. Uh, we're going to do Mailbag Monday today. Tons of fantastic questions from you all today. Very excited to get through them. A handful of questions got pushed to Tuesday's episodes. They were recruiting specific, hoping to have an opportunity to speak to Jason Jordan about those. So if you asked a question and you didn't see it answered in the show, just be patient. Hopefully we will get a chance to talk about all of them in later episodes. Uh, we're just going to get right into it today, though. This first question here comes from Christian via Gmail. Christian says, with Saturday afternoon's amazing performance by Julian Strother, I thought it would be great to look at three or four of the best individual performances and or your favorites of all time in Zag program history. Maybe we limit it to regular season games and not the tourney. Yeah, I, I love this conversation. We've had it a few times. It's a, it's a common off-season uh, Mailbag Monday question, as I would expect it to be. So always fun to kind of look back through the history and kind of look at some of the, the most impactful regular season games. In Gonzaga's history, of course, Julian Strother, really phenomenal performance on Saturday. Uh, 40 points. Uh, his career high prior to that game was 23. The 23 was the most he'd scored in a Gonzaga uniform as a junior. Uh, and now we see him dropping 40. Really fantastic. I think when you're talking regular season individual performances, you've got to start the conversation with Kyle Wiltshire. Kyle Wiltshire had 45 points against Pacific back in that 2014-2015 season. Incredible efficiency. 15 of 22 from the field, 8 of 12 from 2, 7 of 10 from deep, 8 of 9 from the free throw line. He basically was just an absolute bucket in every way in that contest. A few other games that stand out to me, and I want to be clear here, I'm kind of picking more of my favorite individual performances, so I'm picking games that I watched live. Uh, clearly, you can go back and look at Adam Morrison's the, the performances that he had and some truly fantastic ones. I certainly watched Morrison at times, but don't really have strong recollections of those games individually. So choosing not to talk about those, although, you know, if you're talking about individual scoring performances in Gonzaga history, your conversation is going to include Adam Morrison. Uh, a few for me. Nigel Williams-Goss, January 5th, 2017, against the Dons of San Francisco. 36 points, 11 boards, 6 assists. He was 12 of 15 from the field in that one. A monster performance from one of Gonzaga's greatest guards of all time. Uh, next up, this is probably the least impressive statistically, as uh, Brandon Clark on the 21st of November, 2018, against the Blue Devils of Duke, 17 points, 6 blocks, Five boards, six of nine from the field. I love this game because it was a quintessential Clark performance before we really knew what that looked like. Super efficient from the field. A lot of block shots. 
did it against the best team in the country, did it against the best player in the country in Zion Williamson. Without Brandon Clark's performance, the Zags do not win that game. Jalen Suggs, uh, November 26th. 2020, his first career game. This is why this one stands out to me. Jalen Suggs debuted as a college basketball player against Kansas, went out and dropped 24 points on with eight assists on nine of 15 from the field. If that's not uh, an impressive way to cement yourself as a legend for uh, one year at a program, I don't know what is. And then finally... Had to mention a game that I was actually at because this is the most fun individual performance I've seen uh, in person. Kevin Pangos, November 14th, 2011 against Washington State. 33.6 assists, nine made three-pointers, tied a Gonzaga school record. He was also six of six from the free throw line. There are tons of other ones. If you have a suggestion here, please let me know. I love looking back and talking about individual uh, dominant Gonzaga performances. Next question here comes from Jacob Quarter 2 on Twitter, who says, after Julian went supernova against Portland, do you think Drew will put up a 40-burger at any time this season? Yeah, Drew had 38 very recently uh, last week, so clearly he is capable of getting to 40. Uh, but ultimately, the answer to this question is no. I, I don't think that he's going to. It it's harder to get to 40 points when you don't rely on a three-point shot. Julian made eight threes in this game. That was more than half of the points that he secured. Uh, Drew's also not a great free-throw shooter, so getting to 40 points is just really different difficult for a player who's not a three-point shooter, not a great free throw shooter. Clearly he is capable. We have seen him score over 35 points multiple times in his career uh, with like 12, 13 games or so remaining this season. Uh, I, and with teams doubling him with him being more of a facilitator right now, as opposed to a dominant low post score. Uh, I think he's capable, but I don't think he's going to. Next question here comes from JC at Lothar King on Twitter, who says, what are your top two or three takeaways from Saturday's games that are only related to what you saw in person? I love this question, JC. It's fun. It's unique. Uh, I was able to attend the game on Saturday in Portland. And I think I'm going to take this question not just from being in person, but from being a fan. Uh, often when I go to games, I go in the media section and, you know, I have my computer open and, and it's a great environment. I love being able to do that, but this was, I was, I was a fan. I went with a buddy. I went with my wife. We sat in the bleachers. We were sitting around other Gonzaga fans. We were partaking in the libations at the child center that they sell. Uh, so it's a different experience than what I'm used to in terms of going to basketball games over the last couple of years. So a few quick takeaways I have the Zags being down is good for the WCC. I think that's kind of an obvious one, but the fans are more engaged. The fans don't go to the games with the expectation that they're going to lose. There's more cheering. There's more jeering. There's more conversation. There's more yelling. There's more just kind of energy in the building. And I think I've been to a lot of Gonzaga games at the child center. A lot of them. It's usually 80, 20. This year was not 80-20. It was not quite 50-50, I don't think, by my eye test. I think there was more Zag fans than Pilots fans, but it was close. It was a lot closer than it normally is, and it was a loud, energetic crowd. Uh, the energy on the bench for the Zags remains strong. This is another takeaway that I had in this game. You was watching the bench. I was really close to where they were. You could see, like, Zach Norvell stood out to me. He's always moving. He's always yelling. He's always talking. Uh, it's great to have him back around the program. Coaching staff's always moving, talking. The bench guys are always engaged and active. And you can see that a little bit uh, when you're watching the games on TV. But it's for me, seeing them continue to not shrug their shoulders and not have negative attitudes when the game started to go negatively, that's how they're able to come back in games like they did against BYU, like they did against Santa Clara, like they did against San Francisco. They have the kind of poise to continue to do so, and you could see that in this contest. Last up, student section needs more unity. There, the student section was packed. There was Portland Pilot students throughout that entire section. They were there. They stayed the whole game. 
they were cheering when they were supposed to be cheering, but there wasn't any actual cheers. There wasn't any chore- kind of choreography. There wasn't any of that. And, and I know that that kind of has to develop naturally at, at these programs. And, you know, Gonzaga has had it for years and years. People think, oh, Gonzaga only got it because they got good. Like Gonzaga's student section started in 1985. They didn't make the NCAA tournament until 1999. Like that's not how that story goes. And so I would hope to see schools like Portland and, and other programs in the conference start to figure out how to get that to happen organically because it's a lot more fun to go to college basketball games where the student section has kind of choreographed cheers and is doing something more specific. I was glad to see the section full and the students were there and engaged, but they just don't have, they don't really have a plan going into the games yet. Next question here comes from Christian again via Gmail. Christian says, are the Zags getting better defensively by the eye test statistically and or both? The second half of the Zags pilots game was extremely well played by both teams offensively but it did appear that Gonzaga had stretches where they played solid team defense. Uh, yeah, the defense was a little bit better in the second half of that game, uh, but they still have issues. The, the issues that have played Gonzaga all year on the defensive end of the floor remain issues. They have a complete lack of rim protection. If guards can get by the first line of defense, if they can get off the screen and get going downhill towards the rim, or if they just straight up beat their defender, backdoor cut, whatever it may be, there's not anybody there to really prevent them from scoring. That has not that has been an issue all year long, and it doesn't think doesn't look like it's going to stop becoming an issue. And then Gonzaga's transition defense is, is pretty terrible, and UP took very good advantage of that. They they spread the floor, they got shooters in open spots when they were coming down the floor, and they got a lot of open looks because of that. Next question, similar vein, comes from Jacob Quarter Two on Twitter, who says, "Assuming the Zags' defense remains middling and uninspired, should we be worried about the Zags' Sweet Sixteen streak coming to an end?" Yeah, I think if you're watching the Zags this year pretty regularly, you should be a little worried about the Sweet 16 streak coming to an end. That doesn't mean I think that there's no way they're going to advance past the Sweet 16. They obviously could advance past the Sweet 16. This team's high-end talent is is good enough to be an Elite Eight team. I mean, they they have that ability uh, within them. But they also, if your team loses to LMU, and I'm not not disrespecting LMU at all, they are a good quality basketball team, but they are not going to make the NCAA tournament, and they should not make the NCAA tournament. So if you are capable of losing to that team, yeah, you might not make the Sweet 16. I think the matchups have to favor them, and I think the players have to really execute the game plan specifically on defense. I think some of the issues they have on defense are less about the coaching staff and the game plan and more about the players being talented enough to execute the game plan. That's what's going to need to happen for this team to get back to the Sweet 16 and beyond. Final question of the segment here comes from Austin via Gmail. Austin says, not thinking it will really happen, but do you think it might be worth having a shakeup in the lineup? Don't get me wrong, this team is really good, but maybe a shakeup in the lineup is what this team needs to get on track. I don't think the starting lineup is the issue. I think playing time distribution is an issue, and I've been pretty vocal about that. Uh, specifically regarding Hunter Salas, I believe he deserves to play more minutes. I think that he deserves to play in the end-of-game situations, especially when Gonzaga needs a stop defensively. Is baffling to me in the LMU game that he was not playing at the end of the game when all Gonzaga needed to do was stop Cam Shelton from scoring, and the best player on the team who who's most equipped to do that wasn't on the floor. That was baffling to me. However, I don't think Hunter Salas should start, and that's not me saying he's not one of their best players necessarily. It's more just like I think his energy and defensive impact is better suited coming off the bench. I kind of feel the same about Ben Gregg. Both those guys should come off the bench and bring that energy, that enthusiasm, that kind of grit uh, in that role. I do think that the playing distribution should change. I think the lineup should change a little or should change a little bit, but I don't think that the starting lineup needs to go through a change. All right, more listener submitted questions coming your way in the second segment, including more discussion about Gonzaga's upcoming battles with St. Mary's. But first, I want to tell you all about FanDuel. 
The NFL playoffs are here. We're really excited about our new sports betting partner for Locked On because they're the number one sports book in America, and that is FanDuel. And if you're new to FanDuel, that's even better. They have so many great features that make betting on sports fun and easy. New customers can join today to get started with $150 in free bets guaranteed when you place your first $5 bet. Just sign up at FanDuel.com slash Locked On. FanDuel has all your favorite bets from the money line to point spreads to player props. Plus, you can even combine your bets for a bigger payout with same game parlay. Maybe you like Gonzaga's odds to beat the spread at home against Santa Clara on Thursday. Or maybe you like the Zags on Saturday against the Gales of St. Mary's. Either way, bet comfortably on an app that's safe, secure, and super easy to use. So basketball fans, don't miss out. Place your first $5 bet to get $150 in free bets, win or lose, at FanDuel.com slash LockedOn. Make every moment more with FanDuel, the official sportsbook partner of the NFL. All right, segment two, still Andy Patton, still locked on Zag, still hammering through a bunch of great listener-submitted questions here for Mailbag Monday. This next question comes from Crosby via Gmail. Crosby says, how far do you think the Zags will go in March? On a similar vein, EA Stone 17 on Twitter said, what is the highest seed the Zags can get for the NCAA tournament? All right, well, for starters, I, I lumped these questions together because, quite frankly, they're both difficult questions to answer here on the final few days of the month of January. We still have all of February. We still got at least two, probably three games against the St. Mary's Gales to go. And until we see how those games play out, until we see how Gonzaga handles BYU at home, how they handle Santa Clara on Thursday, how the the WCC tournament goes, like until we see that, it's hard to know what seed the Zags are going to get, and therefore what their March aspirations might look like. Uh, The Zags right now, I think the highest seed the Zags could get is, the highest seed the Zags could get just in a perfect world is a two seed. And that is if they win every single game from here on out, and they probably need a few other things to happen in order to get a two seed. I think that's very, very unlikely. A three seed, if they win out or only lose one more game, is more likely. But I think ultimately the Zags are probably going to be a four or a five seed. That's kind of where I think that the the season is going to ultimately carry them. In terms of how far I think the Zags will go, it's going to depend on matchups. It's going to depend a lot on matchups. I think the Zags team is absolutely capable of going back to the Sweet 16 and even through the Sweet 16 into the Elite Eight. I also think that there's a lot of first-round matchups that are going to make me really nervous, uh, depending on how the seeding shakes out. Next question, again, on a similar vein here, comes from Jeff via Gmail. Jeff says, the mood around the Zags March chances seems decidedly pessimistic. This is a Gonzaga team with a lot of big wins that is likely to get a three seed in the NCAA tournament, possibly a two seed, and they are capable of making a deep run. Is there something to be said that we should be more optimistic than pessimistic about Gonzaga's March chances, or is that largely dependent on how the Zags fare against St. Mary's over the next four weeks? Yeah, obviously, kind of what I said before, the Zags have a lot of games left that's going to teach us a lot more about this team. If they all go out and get boat raced twice by St. Mary's, lose both those games by 15 plus points, I think that some of the pessimism that some of the fan base has been showing is probably going to look a little bit more accurate, I guess is a better way to describe that. Whereas if Gonzaga goes out and wins every game from here on out, uh, beats St. Mary's handily, you know, blows out BYU, et cetera, et cetera, then maybe the conversation changes. There's still just a lot of factors at play. Uh, In terms of your optimism regarding this team that is likely to get a three seed, 
I don't necessarily think that they're likely to get a three seed. I think that is currently where they are being projected by Joe Lenardi and by the field of 68 and by Lucas Harkins at uh, heat check and everybody else that's doing brackets right now generally has Gonzaga on the three line, but that's kind of predicated on them not losing from here on out. I, I mentioned, I think they're more likely to be a four or five seed. Uh, and at that point, it's really just kind of kind of depend on the matchups, which leads me to the next question. Also by Jeff via Gmail. Jeff says here, what sort of teams would Gonzaga most benefit to see in their March bracket? Yeah, again, I think you're probably wanting teams that rely more on low post scoring and don't get out in transition. All of that much, I think we've seen Gonzaga really struggles defending transition shooting. This is what really, really hampered them against BYU. This is what, quite frankly, how Portland maintained managed to stay in that game against the Zags in so many ways was because they would get rebounds, get out in transition, find Moses Wood in the corner for a three, um, find Applewhite for a three, like find Tyler Robertson. Like they were able to find shooters on the perimeter. And you look at the BYU game and Spencer Johnson just posted up at the three point line when the Zags or when BYU got out in transition, Zags couldn't find shooters. They got buried that way. So I think a team that really relies on low post scoring and the Zags don't have great low post defense, but frankly, the Zags don't have great defense in really any capacity. So I think I'd rather play a team that plays slow, plays methodical, relies on low post scoring. I also think on the defensive end, you want a team that's not super aggressive in terms of, you know, pressuring Gonzaga's guards at the point of attack, pressuring them as soon as they cross half court. Uh, teams that are a little bit smaller, that play a little bit more conservative defensively. Teams that maybe aren't super fluid three-point shooting teams. Now, teams that have all of those or many of those deficiencies probably are not in the NCAA tournament, so it's going to be difficult to find a team that has all of that. But if there are teams that maybe have have weaknesses that are somewhat similar to Gonzaga's strengths that Gonzaga could potentially exploit uh, in either offensive or defensive matchups, that's going to help this team be more likely to advance and maybe get back into the Sweet 16 or even further. Next question here comes from at EA Stone 17 on Twitter. Simple question. Will Drew catch Frank Burgess? Yes, of course. Drew Timmy on the quest to be the number one all-time leading scorer in Gonzaga basketball history. He currently has 1,992 points. Burgess finished his career with 2,196, meaning that Timmy is 204 points away from tying Frank, 205 points away from becoming the sole leader in points for Gonzaga of all time. Again, it's hard to know this because we don't know exactly how many more games Gonzaga is going to play. If Gonzaga plays the bare minimum number of games, that is 11. That would be them only playing one game in the WCC tournament, which is would be very surprising. It would also be them losing their first round game in the NCAA tournament, which would also be fairly surprising. If they only play 11 more games, Drew would have to average 18.5 points per game to get to 204 points. Doable? Yes. If Gonzaga's losing those first two games, it's probably because Drew's not having a very good game. So I don't know if he would necessarily get to 18 and a half points per game. But again, that's fairly doable. If the Zags play 13 games, which either means they make the WC, you guys can figure it out, probably means they win the WCC championship and at least play two games in the NCAA tournament. That's still a disappointing year because that's not even them reaching the Sweet 16. If they do that, 17 points per game. Definitely, definitely doable for Drew Timmy. If the Zags have 14 more games, which I think is the most likely situation, that is a WCC championship, that is them playing two NCAA tournament games, 14 and a half points per game. And if the Zags play 15 more games, that's 13.6 points per game. All this to say, 
Yeah, I think Drew Timmy's going to catch Frank Burgess. There's also the factor that he could come back for another year, in which case he is going to not only catch Frank Burgess, he is going to blow right past him on the all-time scoring list. Next question here comes from Austin via Gmail. Austin says, I can't help but think this team is missing that leader, not a leader in points, but someone who carries the heart of the team like we have seen in previous years, most recent players like Jalen Suggs, Nigel Williams-Goss, and as far back as Kevin Pangos and Matt Bolden. I don't like how, that we describe that as being far back, but hey, whatever, I'll get over it. Uh, those players were not always the best on the floor, but they made everyone around them better. What are your thoughts? Well, I, I don't want to be super nitpicky here, but uh, for the most part, Jalen Suggs, Nigel Williams, Goss, Kevin Pangos, and Matt Bolden were the best players on the floor uh, in almost every capacity. Those guys were the best players uh, at the time. I do think that kind of leans into the point that you want your leader, your heart, your soul, whatever you want to, whatever kind of superlative, superlative you want to use to describe that. You kind of want it to be one of your better players. Uh, and I do think that for Gonzaga, I, I think that the argument that they're missing that is probably accurate. Uh, I have said on this podcast before that I don't like to ascribe a lot of uh, describing how I think players are thinking or feeling or whatever without knowing the situations there. Uh, but watching the games, like Mark Few mentioned this on the Gimme Timmy podcast. For those of you who haven't listened, it's Drew Timmy's podcast with Noah Bruno. Bruno, it's very, very good. Mark Few was on the show recently. And Few basically said, we don't have a team of guys who like to communicate. And he was referring to that being on and off the court. He said off the court, you know, they're on their phones. And it was kind of a, a old boomer argument of like, oh, these kids and their phones, which <laughs> I'm not criticizing. I get it. It would be frustrating. But I think that there was a larger element of Mark Few saying like, these, these guys don't communicate. There's not as much camaraderie. There's, there's maybe a little bit more isolation. And you can kind of see that on the court. I know Drew Timmy is the leader of this team. He's the best player on the floor. He's option number one. He's option number two. He might be option number three, quite honestly. He is, uh, you know, he's vocal. He's loud. He's energetic. He's boisterous. He's villainous in some ways. Like he is all of those things. But I think one thing that stands out to me is that all four players that you mentioned in this question are guards. And I think that that's kind of the issue is it's hard to be that player and be a center. You need a guard who can do that. You need a guard who can go take over a game late. Jalen Suggs could take over a game late. Nigel Williams-Goss could take over a game. All of those guys could take over a game late. And Gonzaga doesn't have that guy. They have multiple guys who have hit big shots. Julian Strother hit a huge shot against BYU. Hunter Salas hit a huge shot against BYU. Malachi Smith dropped 27 against Portland. Like Nolan Hickman hit a huge shot against Santa Clara and had 20 points on nine shots. Like Rasir Bolton hit a game-winning tip-in against uh, San Francisco. Like they have guys who can do that, but they do not have a guy who is that. And I think that's what they're missing. All right, more listeners submitted questions, including talk about Drew Timmy and Anton Watson's NBA futures, and of course the upcoming game against St. Mary's right after this. All right, segment three, still in patents, still locked on Zag, still going through Mailbag Monday here. Tons of great questions. We'll get right back into it. This question comes from Gordon via Gmail. Gordon says, Drew Timmy, if he doesn't stick in the NBA, where in the many leagues around the world could he prosper? Quite honestly, pretty much all of them. I have maintained that I don't think Drew Timmy is going to stick in the NBA. I guess that's the right, that's the right terminology. I think that Drew Timmy will play in the NBA. And I think there is a chance that he spends multiple seasons 
playing in the NBA. I think that a lot of that would be like two-way contracts, playing a lot of time in the G League. Like, I'm not sure that he's going to play consistently in the NBA for multiple years, but I do think that he is going to at least get that opportunity to to showcase his skills, to get get chances in the NBA, to get chances in the G League, etc. If he opts to not continue to pursue an NBA career, or if he is not given continued options to do so, and he doesn't want to stick around in the G League and wants to go to Europe where he's going to make more money and uh, just have have a better quality of life, most likely. Uh, there's tons of leagues, tons and tons of leagues. Uh, and I think he would I think he would thrive and succeed in all of them. I, I don't think that there's any league out there where Drew Timmy would be obsolete or not playable. He's just that good of a basketball player. Um, some of those leagues that kind of stand out to me, the EuroLeague is the best league outside of the NBA that exists in all of basketball. There's some really, really talented players in the EuroLeague. Uh, Liga ACB in Spain is another really, really fantastic league. The Turkish Basketball League, Kyle Wilcher spent a lot of time there in the past. Uh, and then, I mean, there's Chinese leagues that are very good, Japanese leagues that are good. Like, there's tons and tons of leagues overseas, Greek leagues, Israeli leagues, like, et cetera, et cetera. And if Timmy were to go to Europe, I think he would probably play in the EuroLeague or in Spain. Uh, maybe he has more vested interests in other. I mean, I don't know. I don't know the guy. I don't know exactly where he would want to play necessarily and what what kind of opportunities are going to be provided for him. But to me, if, if Drew Timmy's starting to look for European options, I'd be pretty surprised if some team in the EuroLeague doesn't come calling right away because I think he's going to make a big impact overseas if that's what he ends up doing. Next question here comes from Jacob Quarter 2 on Twitter, who says, can Anton come back next year for a super senior year? And if so, do you think he will be, do you think he will, and do you think he will be the guy for the Zags next season? Uh, so he can, yes. He has a fifth-year option. Again, he, as a, he was a freshman uh, before the COVID year, so the COVID season allows him to have a fifth year. So does Drew Timmy. Both those guys could, in theory, respond, return to Gonzaga for another season. I'm really split on whether Anton's going to. I really am. I don't honestly know. Uh, my gut has told me no, but I was thinking about it more like he's from Spokane. He loves Gonzaga. He doesn't really have an obvious NBA fit. I don't think that he's going to be an NBA player. We'll talk about that more in the, in the following question here. Uh, and I think that returning to school probably doesn't move the needle all that much. Maybe he gets more opportunities. Maybe his points per game go up, but he's also a year older and that tends to kind of be a negative when NBA scouts are evaluating him. So it wouldn't be a beneficial, it, it may not be a beneficial de decision for him in terms of pursuing an NBA career, but if his plan is to play professionally, maybe overseas, maybe he wants to come back to Spokane. Maybe he wants to run it back for one more year, stay where he's loved, where he knows, where he's comfortable, you know, get a graduate degree if that's an option, if that's something he's interested in doing. So I think it could happen. In terms of him being the guy, no, he's not going to be a number one option. And I think that's just because it's not really for him. Anton Watson's a high-level role player, and I've mentioned on the show before that I think the, the phrase role player has a negative connotation in a way that it shouldn't, and I think that some of the best players in the NBA are role players, and I think that that's fine, and I think that that's good. In fact, Anton Watson shouldn't be the number one option because I don't think he's a good enough scorer to be the guy that's getting that many touches, that high of a usage rate. I think he thrives the best as being a number two, number three, maybe even a number four option, but a high-level defensive player, a good facilitator, a good playmaker, all of that stuff. I think if Anton were to return, he would have an opportunity to have a bigger role, but not necessarily the role as the guy for the Zags. Next question here comes from at EA Stone 17 on Twitter. Second question of the, zone, of the show here, who says, how high has Anton's draft stock risen this year? Well, he wasn't on any mock drafts last year, like none at all. And then this year he has showed up on, as far as I can tell, also zero mock drafts. So that doesn't mean that his draft stock has not improved. 
In fact, it would be shocking if his draft stock in some capacity hadn't improved. I just don't think he's going to be drafted. There is a, you look at the guys who are kind of showing up at the end of mock drafts right now, Hunter Dickinson, Trace Jackson Davis, Drew Timmy, Oscar Shibwe, like those are the guys, Armando Baycott, like those are the guys who are at the end of drafts. And the reason that they're at the end of the draft is because they are high level bigs, very good college players who can't shoot. Anton Watson is also a guy who cannot shoot. He is smaller than those guys, which is a detriment because if you're seven foot two or seven foot four, like Zach Eady, and you can't shoot threes, they still might be able to find a spot for you in the NBA. If you're six, nine and you don't shoot threes, that's really hard. That's really, really hard. You have to be an elite defensive player or elite in every other facet of the game. Anton Watson is, is an elite defensive player. Will he be an elite NBA defensive player? I'm not sure. Will he be above average? Probably, but an above average wing in the NBA defensively who has very little to offer offensively, probably not going to be a guy who, who NBA scouts are all that keen to draft or, or develop, especially because he's an older prospect too. He's already 22. He's had some injury issues. Like I just don't see it. And I, I wish that I did. <laughs> I, mean, I really do. I, I've maintained that I think Anton has the NBA size. He has NBA defensive instincts. We've seen the playmaking and the facilitating really step up in a significant way this year. But at the end of the day, he's not a three-point shooter, and he's a sub-60% free throw shooter. And I think that's enough for NBA scouts to say, yeah, we'll take a chance on somebody else instead. Next question here comes from Austin via Gmail. Austin says, during the LMU game, Dan Dickow commented on the game, they are playing a lot of one-versus-five basketball. It sounds like he was alluding to them not playing team basketball. Do you think this is a valid criticism? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think Gonzaga has had many situations this year where – offensively they get stagnant they get so overly reliant on drew timmy you can make kind of a chicken egg argument here of like are they overly reliant on drew timmy because when they try other things it doesn't work or do the other players not feel empowered to you know take their own shots look for their own things you know try to do something differently because they're being encouraged to only give the ball to drew timmy and i do think that there is a chicken and egg there but at the end of the day whichever one of those it is doesn't really matter because what we're seeing is many instances where gonzaga doesn't have a, a concrete plan when things break down, when they can't get the ball to Drew or when Drew is struggling, they kind of don't exactly know what to do with the basketball. Julian stepping up, dropping eight threes, scoring 40 points against Portland is a great sign that maybe those things might change. Maybe he will use that to carry some more momentum with him and, and, and become a more consistent number two scorer for the Zags because they really need that. Because when the offense does stall out, you do see a lot of isolation basketball in a way that is kind of counter to what Gonzaga has has really built up as their offensive identity for the last couple of decades. A couple more questions here. Next one comes from Jeff via Gmail. Jeff says, in looking at the BYU-St. Mary's game from Saturday, what sort of takeaway can you see about ways Gonzaga can exploit St. Mary's weaknesses and potentially get the win at St. Mary's? Well, I was driving home from the Gonzaga-Portland game for most of the St. Mary's game, so I didn't get a chance to see very much of it. I did see the end. I saw Aiden Mahaney's epic uh, foul foul line jumper to give the Gales the win over BYU, sent them to another narrow loss at the Marriott Center. Uh, in terms of what Gonzaga should do against St. Mary's, uh, pressure the guards, pressure Aiden Mahaney, make him cough the ball up, try to get turnovers, uh, try to get them out of their offensive routine. Gonzaga so often has just sat back and let Randy Bennett offenses take 29 and a half seconds off the clock every single time they get the ball. And it is endlessly frustrating. It's part of the reason that the LMU game made me really anxious and nervous heading into this St. Mary's game, because at the end of that game, when LMU, when the clock was 
not in Gonzaga's favor. The clock was in LMU's favor. And for some reason, Gonzaga was playing back and letting Cam Shelton just hold the basketball for 27 seconds, and it completely derailed Gonzaga's ability to get back into the game. If Gonzaga comes into this game and does the same thing and lets St. Mary's get comfortable, get situated, get set up in their offense – I'll be quite honest. I think there's a very little chance that Gonzaga wins if they do that. If they come out, they put pressure, they try half-court traps, they do whatever they can to get Aiden Mahaney to have to give up the basketball to force St. Mary's. It it might not work. They might try to do a lot of traps, a lot of pressure, and St. Mary's might get some easy buckets out of it. And that's that's a bummer if that happens. That's not ideal, but I'd rather them try that than just sit back and let St. Mary's do what St. Mary's does because if they do that, I don't think they're going to win. Final question of the show here comes from Jeff again. Jeff via Gmail says, is it possible to have more heartbreak than BYU now has from their games at home against Gonzaga and St. Mary's? And how much different could WCC play be right now if BYU would have just made their free throws, particularly in their games against Gonzaga, St. Mary's, and LMU? Yeah, it's a heartbreak city for the Cougars right now. Finally go around in the WCC, Gonzaga and St. Mary's. Certainly wanted to send them off with a, with a little wave and a, nink, and a wink there. Uh, two really tough losses at the Marriott Center by one point in the final seconds. I don't think the free throws are going to make a huge difference. BYU went 5 of 9 from the free throw line against LMU. Let's assume they make all of them. They make all nine of their free throws in that game. That's four more points. They lost by five. Just doesn't matter. Uh, In the Gonzaga game, they went 5 of 10. Their season average is 71%. So if they went 7 for 10, okay, maybe that is the difference. Maybe that does get them a win in that contest. Uh, St. Mary's kind of a similar situation. They went 6 of 10 in that game. They'd gone 7 of 10. It's a tie game. Maybe we go to OT. But that's semantics. We're arguing things that are hypotheticals that it's hard to know how they would actually change the impact of the game. Uh, I think BYU is probably the third or fourth best team in the conference. Currently in the standings, they show up as seventh. So if you were to add a few more wins to their resume, if they hadn't lost those, those devastating games to Gonzaga and St. Mary's, yeah, maybe they are fourth or fifth. Maybe that's makes the standings look more normal in terms of what the eye test is telling us about the WCC. But ultimately I don't think this BYU team is suddenly an NCAA tournament team. If they didn't lose to Gonzaga or St. Mary's, I don't think it makes that big of a difference. Uh, We'll see if they can respond well in their upcoming games against these teams and maybe, maybe not, maybe not suffer any more heartbreaking losses. All right, that's going to do it for me today. Plenty of more fantastic content coming your way later this week. Also, if you have not done so yet, check out the Locked On College Basketball Podcast. It's five days a week. Myself, my co-host Isaac Shade of Locked On Tar Heels, we're talking all things college hoops, night in, night out. You can go find it on YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, thank you all for listening, and go Zags.